0: This is They Create World 171, A Rogue Survival, Part 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Hello, kids. I'm talking to you from the distant past, before the live stream, because that's how we record here. Supposedly, you enjoyed us, we enjoyed talking to you, and we'd like to thank everyone who came out and listened to us. I might even interject at some point in the future and go, hey, remember this interesting
1: moment here. For those of you wondering how that fire started in the middle of the stream, we still have not figured it out. We will keep you up to date on that, and if we ever figure out how that happened, we'll let you know. However, we're all okay, everyone's okay, the fire didn't do any lasting damage. Who had to fire, you or me? I mean, who do you want it to be? We're in the future talking about the past of the future and the past, so it can be whatever you want it to be, Jeffrey.
0: Okay. How about a fire outside the window? And then it talked to us about how wonderful we are in video game history from the future. So in the year 3000, historians come
1: back in order to listen to us. Sure. We'll go with that. So yes, you would think we'd be exhausted because we just had a live stream, but we haven't had a live stream yet, so we are still young and full of vigor and ready to bring you the second part of our two-part look at Rogue and its descendants and the rogue-like genre, which is these days all the rage, particularly in the indie gaming scene. As I recall, we left
0: off with a long interlude of "Here's Unix, here's where it came from." Here is where it's going. And here is why it is so crucial to Rogue. And this is how Rogue took over the
1: world of BSD. Yes, to a degree. Though, one thing that we'll get into in this episode as we talk about this is obviously Rogue was influential. Obviously, Rogue was widely played in many circles. It was certainly a popular program on early Usenet, so popular that there was a specific Usenet news group dedicated to it. This would be akin to having a subreddit dedicated to something today, except while on the modern internet there are subreddits for every last thing in existence, kind of very specific user groups like this on Usenet back in the day when resources were more precious were a very rare commodity. The fact that Rogue had its own Usenet group devoted to it says something about its popularity. However, there were barriers to its truly widespread spread, for lack of a better word, across early gaming. Now, one of the big ones of these is that the creators refused to give out the source code to the game. While it was very easily playable on any system that had Unix installed, and of course, starting in 1984, actually literally came with Unix if you were using the Berkeley Standard Distribution, you couldn't change it modify it, make your own version of it, or, more importantly, adapt it to other environments. Rogue, in its original incarnation—I not mean, obviously there are many other incarnations today—but Rogue was a Unix program. The creators of the game weren't really in the business of porting it into other mainframe systems. The other thing is that Rogue was never going to be a commercial product in this period of time. Or I should say, more precisely, not a particularly successful commercial product. Wait, they actually sold it? We're getting there. The reason for this is its primitive-looking nature with its ASCII characters. Yes, there were a lot of primitives in the early computer game market, and there was a whole text adventure category where there were literally no graphics at all. People were just typing text on parsers. But... That's a little bit different. That's interactive fiction. That's reading something. You know, it's bookware. It feels like you're reading a story, immersing yourself in a story. Rogue is just ASCII characters. Some later versions, you know, maybe had solid walls, lines to do solid walls and instead of equal signs or whatever to add a tiny bit of graphical element. And there were experimenting with using some color here and there and that kind of thing. But it's ASCII characters. By the time Rogue is starting to really proliferate, 82, 83, especially 84, there is already a thriving RPG market on computers. There's already Ultima and Wizardry. No, those games aren't randomized. Those games are fixed games. But they set a standard for graphics on home computer platforms. Even back then, as, as much as people like to say, back in my day, we didn't care about whether the games were pretty, we just were there for gameplay. And it's like, no, actually, you weren't. Maybe you specifically, Mr. Old Man, were. Maybe that was your lived experience, but the wider market, no. Were the graphics more primitive? Yes. But graphical presentation has always been an important part of the mass-market computer game market. Rogue didn't have those. There was an expectation of what an action game looked like. There was an expectation of what an RPG looked like. Rogue, even if it had interesting deep gameplay and randomized dungeons, never the same game twice, did not conform to that standard. There was an attempt to commercialize it. It came about almost by accident. It happened due to an individual by the name of John Lane, who was working at the Italian computer company Olivetti. Lane had found Rogue on a Unix system at Olivetti, had fallen in love with it, as so many people did. By complete coincidence, it happened that sometime shortly after that, Michael Toy, who we may remember as the co-creator of Rogue after his university days, became a consultant with Olivetti and so met Lane. Lane was so enthusiastic about the game that he said to Toy, It's like, hey, we should make a version of this for the PC. You know, the PC's out there now, the PC's getting big. Let's make a DOS version of Rogue and see about getting this into the market. Toy was like, Sure, let's do that. So they uh, created a company, AI Design, and they ported Rogue to PC. They later ported it to some other platforms as well, including the Mac. Glenn Wickman actually came back. We may recall that after a certain point, Wickman was really no longer involved in the development of Rogue anymore once Toy left UC Santa Cruz for UC Berkeley. Wickman came back to help with the Mac version and do some other stuff, and they got some versions of the game together. But the problem is, because of that lack of graphics, nobody was really interested in it. They had a real hard time finding a publisher. Epic's Finally agreed to take it on, which was a, a pretty big deal as a publisher on computer platforms in the mid-1980s. Even Epics didn't really want to sell it in stores. We've talked about before how Epics had more success with action-oriented games than a lot of other computer game companies in that time period did. They had their games series of games—summer games, winter games— world games, etc. And they also had some other action programs that had done very well, like the Jumpman games and Impossible Mission. They were more into action games. They were more getting into mass market retailers, toy stores, and uh, discount houses like Walmart and Target. They didn't think that that crowd was really going to be interested because that crowd is more about graphics and solid action. They're less about no graphics and sophisticated gameplay, more difficult-to-learn gameplay. Epic's picked it up, but they didn't sell it through their retailers. They only sold it as a catalog product, as in, in literally in in a catalog. So they sold a few units, but it it didn't really ever do anything, and and there was no way that Rogue ever was going to just because of the nature of it. Rogue and games of its type throughout the rest of the 1980s into the early 1990s really only existed in this pre-World Wide Web proto-internet kind of space, the space of Usenet which we went into detail on last time, this space of BBSs, this space of dialing into these individual networks where you could find programs. And, of course, it persisted on Unix systems. It persisted in university computer labs and places like that. The journey, though, towards really getting a broad spectrum of players within this space had less to do with Rogue because of the aforementioned source code issues and more to do with the small number of people that were inspired by Rogue and loved it so much that they actually recreated their own versions. Recreated because they literally did not have access to what they needed from the original Rogue to keep playing it. The first of these, and the most notable of these, was a game by the name of Hack that was actually created by a high school student by the name of Jay Finlayson in uh, the Lincoln Sudbury School District in Massachusetts. The way this came about is, is actually very interesting. It goes to a lot of the things that we've talked about before in other episodes and our time-sharing episodes and whatnot about the early communal nature of some of the computer labs that had real-time computers that were growing up in this time period. The reason that Finlayson in 1981-1982 was even able to have an environment in school where he could create something like this has everything to do with his instructor at the school, a gentleman by the name of Brian Harvey. Harvey had been an MIT student in the 60s. In a similar manner, one might say to how the Space War hackers kind of got involved with computing. Harvey became frustrated with the access that you could get to most computers on the university campus until he discovered the AI lab. A lot of the people that built Space War were also members of the AI lab. It had been started by John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky to do AI research and was Kind of separate from the traditional computing resources available at the uh, university. The AI lab has a very important history in computer game history that we won't get into today because, I mean, Project Mac in part spawns out of the AI lab and uh, the dynamic modeling group and all of these people that did Zork. They weren't directly necessarily from the AI lab, but the AI lab was part of the mix of computing at MIT that kind of led to some of this stuff. Harvey was just blown away by the fact that he could just get on the computers and do stuff himself. He talks about his kind of seminal moment was when he discovered a bug in the very early word processor program that was being used at the AI lab, which was called Teco, T-E-C-O. He went to a system programmer and said, hey, there's a bug in this. And the guy said, I'm busy. Here, you fix it. So He did. You know that was kind of the collaborative nature of the AI lab that was very different from some of the other computing resources. From that was born his feeling and desire that working with computers and learning computers was best accomplished just by playing with computers, not by structured lecture, not by structured instruction, but basically by just playing with computers and then self-discovering. Then when you have questions, you know, get help, but you know, just kind of roam free. It's, it's kind of this whole MIT thing that even goes all the way back to what was going on on Whirlwind. So after that, he went to graduate school at Stanford, another place with the Stanford AI Lab, where he went, Sail, the same place that Nolan Bushnell discovered Space War, which, again, had a very collaborative setup. Anyone could basically do anything if they were affiliated with the project. They didn't necessarily need to jump through a bunch of hoops to use the computers. After that, he pivoted into education and got a job at Lincoln-Sudbury in 1979 to be their very first computer teacher. They had a computer there before, but it was part of the math department. They actually established a brand new uh, computer department, and he was the sole instructor. At the time, the school just had an aging PDP-8 computer, which was one of the first mini computers, but by 1980, I mean, it it had been launched in the mid-60s. I mean, it was really showing its age. So he was able to actually get a PDP-11, the computer that we talked about that was so identified with and associated with Unix, only 25% of the cost. He was able to convince DEC to give him a grant. He wanted them to give it to him for free. And they said, look, we never give anyone stuff for free because when we say we're going to give it people for free, people always order more than they need because it's free. We need to keep this under control, but fine, we'll give it to you 75% off. So he was able to swing buying that PDP-11 for the school district, and then he created an environment where the students that were involved in programming there could just come in and play. When he first started, he did a thing where like every week he would give an hour-long lecture like in the first hour of the week, and then for the rest of the week they could just play. Nobody liked the lectures, and I don't just mean the students. He didn't like doing the lectures either. So they were like, okay, fine, we'll skip the lectures. It's just nonstop play. And he didn't care who hung out there after hours. Technically, students were supposed to leave when the school was locked for the night. Sometimes students would hide from the janitor and stay overnight. Not something that he officially condoned, but during the hours the school building was open, he didn't care who was there. Junior high school students started coming as well came to the point where he was having a meeting with his counterparts in the junior high school, and they said, you know, programming used to be really popular with the junior high kids, and now nobody comes anymore. I wonder what changed about the kids. And he realized, oh, nothing changed about the kids. They're just coming to the high school to program instead. (laughs) I just find it funny that they're kids trying to sneak into school as opposed to sneak out of school. Very true, right? As Harvey himself said in interviews afterwards, you know, he realized years later that part of that was not just enthusiasm. That's usually a sign that kids don't want to be at home because of some difficult home environment going on. It's not like all of his kids were, you know, trying to hide there overnight. (laughs) But yes, you know, when you have the computer bug in this period of time when individuals don't really have computers in their homes, if you were a kid that really loved programming, you couldn't do it at home. You were unlikely to have one of the hobbyist computers available at the time, or an Apple II, or one of the turnkey systems that had just come out. This was your only chance to engage in that activity. So that's, like we said, why kids were actually like, oh yes, please let me stay at school as long as possible to do this thing. So that was the environment, and it was an environment where the kids could just play, essentially. I mean, you know, they got grades, they were learning something, but it was very little structure to the curriculum. In the midst of all this, that's when Jay Finlayson came to the school. He had discovered programming in the junior high school, and so he'd been programming for a couple of years before he came to Lincoln-Sudbury, but it was all school-related stuff. It was not long after Finlayson got to the school that Harvey went back to San Francisco to give a guest computer lecture, because remember, I mean, this guy's a teacher, but he's a teacher with an undergrad degree from MIT and a graduate degree from Stanford, so I mean, this guy knows his stuff. He had a lecture uh, that he was giving, and he took some of his best students with him so they could hang out with him as as part of this and see the computing resources at the universities. It's there at UC Berkeley that Finlayson encountered Rogue in its native habitat and was absolutely blown away from it. He only got to play it for, you know, six, eight hours. They weren't there long, and there were other things going on, too. But he got a chance to play Rogue for several hours, and he was just blown away by it, and he knew that he needed to have that on his computer at the high school computer back in Lincoln-Sudbury. So he took it upon himself to recreate Rogue as best he could based on his memory, but also at the same time making it bigger and better. We talked about some of the limitations of the first Rogue, the fact that even though levels of the dungeon were multiple rooms, all of those multiple rooms had to fit on a single screen. There was no scrolling the screen to get to further parts of the dungeon. They had also only had as many monsters as there were letter keys, letters of the alphabet. 26. They used other symbols for other things. You know, they used the at sign for the player, they used... Pluses for doors, they used equal signs for walls, they used other things for other things, but monsters, there were just 26, one for each letter of the alphabet. Of course, there are more characters than 26 characters in the ASCII set, so Finlayson also resolved to put more monsters in. He was basically just taking the things that made Rogue Rogue, random generation, ASCII characters, permadeath, that kind of stuff, and expanding it based on his memory of the original game. So that was Hack. Unlike Rogue, where the source code was, quite frankly, jealously guarded. I mean, they did not want people to have the source code. The game was being given away for free. They weren't making money on it, but they wanted that control over the actual program. Finlayson and his buddies made it freely available. They actually sent a copy of the program, mailed it in to a group called Usenix, which was a nationwide... Unix users group that also held conferences geared towards Unix users, and they maintained this big database of programs, essentially. I mean, it wasn't in a database, but so not literally a database, but they had this big suite of programs that was distributed in the early days on tape, and I'm sure later on they probably migrated to other storage mediums. They had this big repository of programs that they distributed on tape to anyone who wanted them, you know, had them at conferences for people to trade and all of that. And so the Lincoln Sidbury kids sent in all their stuff to Usenix, including Hack, because they did that. And then they gave away the source code. It wasn't just the canned compiled game. It was the actual source code. The game spread much more widely than Rogue, probably. I mean, I don't have numbers, but it wouldn't surprise me if Hack were more widespread, because it could be more easily ported to other systems. It could break free of the Unix, PDP-11, VAX ecosystem, and actually find a home in, in other places as well. So Hack gets around, and Hack becomes extremely popular in certain circles, but... Again, its distribution is not necessarily huge. It probably gets a little further than Rogue, or maybe just the same amount as Rogue. I don't know. We're still talking about something that is relatively small in its discoverability. One very important place that it ended up was the Mathematisch Centrum in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands which was the uh, premier research center for math and computer science in the country. It got there through USENIX, because that tape that they submitted to USENIX, it spread around through conferences and swapping and all of that. A professor, I don't know if he was a professor, but at the very least a member of the Department of Mathematics at the Mathematisch Centrum by the name of Andres Brouwer, discovered Hack on a copy of this tape. And he became quite hooked on it as well, as so many people did, you know? We talked about this a little bit, this phenomenon before, but I just think that a lot of this puzzle-solving and discovery and exploration thing is the kind of thing that uh, computer programmers are into in their programming as well. We've talked about this in other episodes, I think. But the kind of person that likes mastering computer code and mastering a computer and solving problems in code to make things happen on a computer is the same doing something like an adventure game or a roguelike game where you are having to explore and learn how things work and puzzle-solve to overcome obstacles that it kind of feeds those same parts of the brain. It satisfies those same parts of the brain, which is why I personally think adventure and rogue these two seminal games, became just so mind-blowingly successful on early computers and in computer science departments and research institutes and laboratories and government think tanks and all of these places. I'm not a programmer myself, so I don't get the thrill out of that challenge, but I think it must scratch some of that same itch. What do you think, Jeffrey? I do
0: program on occasion, though if I were to do it day in, day out, I would probably go crazy. (laughs) It does scratch an itch. There is a sort of a sense of accomplishment once you solve how to make the computer do the thing you want it to do. It's like a little puzzle. What are these little pieces I need to put together in order to go? Almost like a Rube Goldberg machine in a way, or maybe more like a Lego set. You start off with something very simple. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a program that's just going to constantly run until you quit in, say, C parlance, A do while group. Do while running. When running is true, we're continuing to do our thing. Okay, well, how do we exit? We have something that comes up and says, if keyboard input is X, then we quit. Now i got a program that runs and quits. Fantastic. (laughs) Then we go on from there, and you just keep adding and adding little bits. I want a little thing that does this. I want a little thing that does that. Then after you understand how to get all of that in there, you go, oh, if I were to design the entire program from the start like this, then the entire thing more efficient. You sometimes end up rewriting your program in two, three, four different ways as you try to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish, what you want to include. In a way, even Alex has gone through this with his writing of They Create Worlds. He went through three different iterations before he came to the one that is actually published.
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, when you think about it, Rogue scratches some of that same itch. I like that building block analogy because Rogue does something very similar. You pick up Rogue or Hack or any of these games for the first time, and you're like, okay, how does this work? Okay, I move around. I'm in a dungeon. There's enemies. Okay, I see this enemy. What happened? What did he do? Okay, he killed me like this. So I can counter it like doing this. And then you get a little further. You know, let's say you die for the first time, and you're like, what happened and you think about so like, i see what happened okay so if i had just approached it this way from the start i would have been better prepared to do that so you're already ready for the next game because it's like okay yeah i can do this better i can do this more efficiently it's very similar to what you said about how you you put the building blocks of programming in and then you get partway through and then you're like oh wait a minute now i see how this works and if i just start with this this and this from the beginning it'll be so much better so now i'll i'll start over and i'll i'll use this as my base and move from there Programming, roguelikes, very, very similar in kind of the way you approach them, and I think very similar in the kind of satisfaction you get from conquering them, which is really why I think it just struck such a chord with so many people at these institutions and at these universities and at these computer labs that were actively involved in computers. Brower was another one of these, just like everybody else. He saw Hack— He got it, like I said, he got the contents of that tape because uh, CWI was very early hooked into uh, what we would now call the internet. He was like, this is great, and he installed it on all their computers, but he was also like, hey, I could make this better because he could modify this, unlike with Rogue. So he started expanding Hack. He added more monsters and more treasures and more levels and bigger dungeons and all of these things to his version of the game. But he didn't claim it as his own. I should have mentioned, but when Fenlison and the group put out the game, they did copyright it. Uh, There's a 1982 copyright date on that game. But as long as the attribution was kept intact, they didn't care what other people did with it. He released his version of Hack, which he named Hack 1.0, but still gave credit to the program that came before. So, you know, this family tree, this lineage was preserved. Very similar to Creative Commons, I would say. Exactly. At the end of 1984, on December 17th, to be exact from Brower's memory, as uh, he told Craddock, who, as we said last time, is a big source for a lot of this rogue stuff, he uploaded his version of Hack 1.0 to Usenet, which we talked about the fundamental nature of in the previous episode. This gave Hack a much wider distribution. So when I was saying that Hack probably ended up spreading more far and wide than Rogue, it probably wasn't before Brower's version of it. Like, obviously, the, the Finlayson's original version did spread some, but Hack 1.0 by Brower building on Finlayson is the one that really got out there in a big way because it was put on Usenet. Just like Rogue got its own newsgroup, Hack, in... Mid-January 1985, so we're talking about a month after he uploaded it to Usenet. That's how fast it spread like wildfire. Also got its own news group, net.games.hack.
0: Drop a name in there and it sounds very familiar.
1: (laughs) Exactly. He kept updating it over the next couple of years, adding more sophisticated monsters. Because one thing that also distinguished both hack and net hack from Rogue that I didn't mention is not only did Rogue only have those 26 monsters, but there really wasn't any variety in them. They all had different names, and they might have slightly different attributes, but basically all the monsters, for the most part, reacted on a monster-sees-you, monster-charges-you paradigm. It's turn-based, not real-time. They're charging you one turn at a time, but there wasn't much variation. Both Finlayson's hack and Brower's hack 1.0 and subsequent versions did a lot to change that. They not only had more monsters, but they had monsters with more variety, and some of which had some interesting strategy. One example of this, it's the one Craddock uses. I mean, I haven't really played these games, I'll admit, though I think Jeffrey's going to have something to say about some of this in a little bit from his experience, but we'll get there. The one that Craddock uses as an example is the worm, which was added in one of the later versions of Brower's hack. So we're all still character-based graphics. So the worm is a W followed by four tildes. It's too dangerous to attack the worm head-on from the W. You'll get eaten. You have to attack from the tildes, but if you attack from the middle of the worm, if you attack one of the tildes that isn't the final tilde, when you attack it and quote-unquote kill it, you will actually split it into two worms, so on and so forth. So you actually have to get around to the rear of the worm and kill it from behind in order to not get eaten and not end up with 50 monsters sharing the screen with you. Very important safety note. (laughs) They're adding some interesting strategy. They're adding more, 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 and it's just taking off. Once it's out in the world... It starts getting ported to other systems, and this is very important as well, because like I said, Rogue never really comfortably left the confines of the Unix environment. Yes, they released some commercial versions, but you know those weren't very successful. In terms of really spreading this thing, which was done by people distributing free versions, it had to be gotten to a wider audience and then ported. So Brower's version is still a Unix-based one. It's being distributed over Usenet. But from there, others start making their own free versions of it. Another programmer by the name of Don Neller created a version for MS DOS that could run on PCs, which he called PC Hack. And he gave it its own designation, 1.01e. Other developers ported it to other systems. Now you're starting to get this kind of hack style game really, really spreading until you finally get a programmer by the name of Mike Stevenson discovering it in the mid-1980s. Stevenson got a version of the Brower hack and again decided, hey, I can do more with this. I can make it better. Then he met other enthusiasts online who felt the same way, that, hey, we can do this better. He met a guy named Yuschak Miller, who was a philosophy professor at the University of Pennsylvania, met another programmer by the name of Janet Walls. The three of them were sharing their enthusiasm for hack and improving hack, and they decided to collaborate and make their own improvement of what Brower had improved upon, what Finlayson had improved upon, based on his memory of playing Rogue. It's before open source, before what we would call open source today, but, I mean— It's kind of open source, (laughs) you know, the way this is spreading. They decided to call themselves the Dev Team, since they were kind of a collective. They started releasing their own more advanced versions of hack, and then it got to the point where they had made so many changes that they decided, you know, really, we shouldn't call this hack anymore. We need to distinguish it. Since the game had spread so heavily on Usenet, they decided to combine Usenet and Hack, and in July 1987, released version 1.3d of their version of Hack for the first time under the name NetHack. Jeffrey, I understand that you can say some things about NetHack.
0: I'm not sure how many things I can say, but... NetHack is really, really fascinating. You can play it today, right now. You can go and download it. Mm -hmm. Just type in NetHack, nethack nethack.org. As of this recording, they have version 3.66. It has been changed. It has been modified. It has been improved. You can download it. There are people who put little skins on it so that it has pretty graphics. There are people who just let you go, hey, I just want to have those. Nice, ASCII characters the way we intended back in the day, the 80s, which were cool.
1: <laughs> yep, there was a gap for a while. It has not been continuously updated, but it was continuously updated for many years. And after it was uh, updated, was not updated for a while. It's, it's been updated again, some more recently. It's rogue, it's hack on steroids. Because there were so many contributors over the years, it started with these three individuals, but they grew in size over time. They first used that dev team name that was first coined, not when NetHack started, but in July 1989, when they released 3.0, was the first time they referred to the dev team. Because there were so many people working on it for so long, it just grew and grew and grew in so many interesting directions. They added character classes, both things that you would expect, like your typical fighters and rogues, but also things that are just more outlandish, like samurai, or just plain silly, like the tourist who has a lot of resources and really no fighting ability. They added all sorts of status effects, all sorts of monsters. There were actually pets that could fight with you. So if you think about your pet classes today, that actually even was in Brower's hack. That was one of the things Brower added was pets that fought alongside you when he did it. So when you think of pet classes in uh, MMOs, I mean, this was one of the starting points for that kind of thing. Just to give an example, it's the example again Craddock uses, but it's a great example, so it's worth repeating here. Just about how they thought of everything and how you could try almost anything and how items and enemies interacted with each other in very interesting ways. One of the monsters in the game is the cockatrice. And as is usually the case when you have a cockatrice running around, it's a thing from European folklore. The cockatrice is able to turn things into stone. In the game, it needs to actually touch them to be able to do it. Once you kill a cockatrice, if you put on some gloves so that you are not coming into direct contact between your body and the cockatrice, you can pick up the corpse of the cockatrice, use it as a club, and any creature it touches successfully will turn to stone because of the capability of the cockatrice. More or less instant kills as long as you can hit. Absolutely though it can backfire on you. There are kind of two things that define NetHack kind of in lore. The lore of game players, I mean, not lore within the game itself. One is the acronym TDTTOE, which stands for The Dev Team Thinks of Everything which just goes to this idea that just about anything you can try, even if you're not able to do it, there's a response for it. Just because it's been updated for so long by so many people that they've just thought of everything. Anything you've thought to try, they've already figured out whether you can do it or not and how to react to you when you try it. The other acronym is YASD, which is yet another stupid death. Because there's so much variety and so many systems and so many interesting ways to do things, it means there's also very interesting ways to die. In this, I think a little bit of Breath of the Wild, for a modern example, where you could just be strolling along happily, and then suddenly you accidentally set the grass on fire next to you, and then the grass burns up, and and then you're dead, or stuff like that. Breath of the Wild has a lot of ways where you can just randomly and unexpectedly die, and not quite as brutal as a roguelike, but just this similar idea. So there are a lot of ways that you can die, some expected, some surprising, some comical, For instance, going back to that cockatrice, another example Craddock gives is, while wielding that as a club, when you're going downstairs, it is theoretically possible to fall on the stairs. If you are wielding that cockatrice as a club, and you trip and fall down the stairs, there is a chance that because your body is flailing in all sorts of different directions, that cockatrice club you are wielding could touch your body, your actual skin, in which case you would turn to stone and die. That's NetHack. It's, I think, the most widespread of all of these. Now, I don't have a scientific way to prove this, but I think when most people of a certain age, you know, most people that were playing computer games in the 80s, 90s, I think most of them that say that, oh, yeah, I'm a fan of rogue games or I'm fans of, of hack or whatever, what they're really saying is that they played NetHack. I think NetHack is probably the one that has been played way more than any of these others. As we've seen here, there is a direct line from the original Rogue to NetHack as it exists today. I think that's the first one that I remember playing
0: is NetHack. Mm -hmm. I will, of course, throw into the show notes a link to where you can get your copy that will work on Windows 10. They put the latest version out back in 2020,
1: only two years old. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Still updated, still has a small yet very dedicated fan base. Obviously, it was starting It spread through Usenet, then Usenet became accessible on the early internet once the World Wide Web became about, and so NetHack continued to spread throughout the 90s via the internet. Obviously, games like Hack and Rogue also spread as well, but I think NetHack probably spread more than any of them. There were other games as well that built off of Rogue. Probably the other one that is of particular importance is the game Moria. Like the minds of Moria. It's exactly the minds of Moria. This was a game that was created by another programmer by the name of Robert Konecki. Konecki was another one of these kids who was a high school student in the 70s who discovered computers, went to college, in his case, the University of Oklahoma, and discovered college computer labs and continued with their programming obsession. He was using a Unix-based system there, the PDP-11. The computer that he had access to had a copy of Colossal Cave Adventure on it. So we've got a trajectory at the start here that's just like Toy and Wickman. Learned computers in high school or earlier. Went to college. Hung around the computer lab as often as possible. Was playing on PDP-11s with Unix. Discovered the other programs on there. Discovered Adventure. Fell in love with Adventure. I mean, that's just the classic story of computer people in this time period. When the Trinity came out, he got himself a TRS-80. He programmed his own adventure game called Pyramid. He was fiddling around with all these text adventure games, and then in roughly 1981, he discovered Rogue, about the same time that it was discovered by Finlayson. You know, I didn't really talk about this last time, but we don't know exactly when Rogue started to spread. The date that is always thrown around is 1980, is when Rogue entered the wild. But it's not like we have a version that dates to 1980 we don't have any real indication other than the memories of people that it might have existed in 1980. So, it might have been 1980, the people's memories may be correct. It definitely had to be around by 1981 because now you're getting into the realm where Hack came out in 1982 and and Finlayson knows when he presumably knows when he went on that trip and saw the game in San Francisco cuz that was a seminal event and you know, he saw it in 81. We can be pretty darn sure that people saw it in 1981. I don't think it was widespread yet in 1981, but it was getting out there at least by 1981. So Kaneki, just like Finlayson, discovered the game circa 1981 and was just blown away again because of the replayability, because of the depth, because of the amount of things that could happen in the game. He started fooling around with the game and loving it, but then because the game got way too popular way too fast, as was often the case at these computer labs, the sysadmins shut it down. Nobody was allowed to play that game anymore. The sysadmins still had access to it, and I'm sure they probably abused their power to play some Rogue here and there, but average Johnny computer user could no longer play the game of Rogue. Konecki ended up with a uh, job as an assistant in the computer department. He actually ran a mini-computer for the math department. In this case, it was a VAX machine which was essentially—I'm oversimplifying, but was essentially the successor to the PDP-11 from DEC. It was a workstation. His job was to help students, essentially tutor students, on the vax. So he had access to this vax, and unlike the engineering department where he discovered Rogue, the mathematics department didn't care if there were games on the computer. Just like with Finlayson, who, was, who saw Rogue fell in love and was like, I need this back where I am, Kaneki said, hey, I'll recreate Rogue on this vax. And again, he didn't have source code or anything like that, so he had to create it from scratch. His game, you know, in a similar manner to Hack, it was take Rogue, do it from memory, perhaps make it a little better here and there. The other twist that he put on it, he was a huge Tolkien fan, so he wanted to put a little more lore into it, and so he had it be based in the mines of Moria. The famed dwarven kingdom of Khazad-dûm that is a big set piece in the, the Fellowship of the Ring. Balrog and all of that. He created this game Moria. In this incarnation, it didn't really get out anywhere. He tinkered with it for a while, he had something going, and then he basically stopped working on it for a couple of years, for about a year, I guess. Then in about March 1983, he picked it back up again for two reasons. One, he was getting married, and he was kind of part-timing his way through school, and This level of responsibility that was going to come with getting married, actually having to get a real job, establish a family, make life work, adult, for lack of a better word, kind of freaked him out. He wanted to get married, presumably, or he would have called the thing off, but he was feeling a lot of pressure about it. The other thing is, is that for a course he had to learn the programming language Pascal. He decided, as a way of distracting himself from the pressure he was feeling about getting married, and to learn Pascal for his class, he would port the Moria game that he was working on into Pascal and start working on it again. So he did that and completed it and actually released it out into the wild in late 1983, the 1.0 version of it. Shortly after that, either in late 1983 or early 1984, he released version 2.0 and made uh, one very important change. The game had gold in it. There had been gold in Rogue, and so he had carried it over to Moria but there was nothing to do with the gold. You could gather it, but it didn't matter. So he decided, you know what I'll do? Instead of the first level of the dungeon being actually a part of the dungeon, I will make the first level of the dungeon a town. So you can go back up from the dungeon to the town and spend your gold on items in the town and then go back into the randomly generated dungeon and keep exploring. You ever played a more fancy, more graphical game that kind of... Played a little like that, Jeffrey?
0: I believe you were making a reference to Castle of the Winds, which is something I have many fond memories of playing with my father. and was probably my first real introduction to this kind of game.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, that's an example and a valid example, though actually what I was going for was a little game called Diablo. I mean, there's that too, but that's more modern down the (laughs) line. Done by that (laughs) company we did a three-parter on. Yes, but Moria begat a game called Angbond. Angbond is another Tolkien reference that was the great fortress of Morgoth in the first age. Again, it was people that came across Moria and were like, I can improve this, I can do better, and that begat Angbond, and Angbond became a fanatical obsession of Eric Schaefer, one of the founders of Condor, which became Blizzard North, which created Diablo. The entire concept of Diablo was basically the Schaefer brothers, who were the founders there, they were fed up with the direction RPGs had gone at the time. They thought that they were getting too bogged down in story elements and whatnot and were losing their pick-up-and-play capabilities. They wanted to simplify and streamline and and make a more interesting RPG for a more modern world. It basically started out as Moria or Engbond with graphics, uh, complete with being turn-based. Then from there, they realized it would be better in real time. And we'll do an episode on Diablo someday, so I won't go into super huge detail here. But long story short, because of that, we got Diablo. You really can't call Diablo a a roguelike for a few reasons, uh, not least of which is that uh, there's not permadeath.
0: Unless you play hardcore mode.
1: Well, yes, you can play hardcore mode. But innately, there's no permadeath. Hesitate to completely call it a roguelike. But this is what really makes Moria... Important. I think NetHack was probably played by more people, but Moria and its successor, Angbon, directly led to Diablo. That's still a little bit of a big deal today. So, just a little side note there. We're not going down the Diablo road today. We got plenty enough to cover, but just a little side note.
0: It's sort of actually, instead of a rogue like, it is a rogue light version game. Yeah. Because you do have randomly generated areas, even though they follow a similar structure. You have the same quest that can show up, and might, there might be some variety in there, especially with side quests, but your mainline quests are all the same. Your item drops are random and stuff like that. It's a little more structured than the complete randomness that a rogue, hack, so on and so forth is.
1: Absolutely. You know, that's kind of the state of things in the 80s and the 90s, even into the 2000s. You have games like NetHack and Moria. There are offshoots of those games, offshoots of offshoots. We're not going to get into all of that. But they existed in this same world that had—it had a limited appeal to a wider audience— But it it lived in the same world that also embraced things like Muds and Moos and Mushes, all of these games that had some sophistication to them from a gameplay perspective, but had little to no graphical element. And so really only appealed to a particular curious kind of hardcore gamer trolling around on the early, in the beginning, individual networks or post-1993 on the internet and on the World Wide Web. There were attempts to bring this into the mainstream here and there. I mean, Diablo is an example of that, and certainly Diablo was successful and spawned other games of its type past it. There were some movements in Japan that we're not going to get into really here, including a Dragon Quest connection that I'm sure Jeffrey is very, very aware of with the Torneco series mm-hmm. of side games which are essentially graphical versions of the Rogue concept starring a character, the merchant uh, Torneko in uh, Japan, Taloon in the original translation in the U.S., merchant character. There was stuff. We're not going to go down all those blind alleys because most of them were pretty niche. But things really began to change in the middle of the 2000s. The reason for that is you had the beginning of this indie gaming scene. We're not going to go into the whole history of the indie scene. I mean, that's its own whole episode. Plus, it's so new still. We're talking about stuff that, I mean, you know, the early indie scene is getting close to 20 years old. It's getting older, <laughs> uh, but it's it's still relatively new compared to a lot of what we talk about. Maybe we can talk about it in uh, 2030 or 2035. Exactly. You know, there's still big picture stuff to get together, but there were a couple of things going on in that period of time. Games were getting more complex, more sophisticated, more expensive. This led to a lot of consolidation of game genres and a lot of focus on big bells and whistles, 3D games, dozens if not hundreds of hours of gameplay, online connectivity, all of this stuff that you know was very successful, but some people that had grown up on games from earlier periods were maybe you know, longing for a little simpler time and longing for some of the game experiences they had had when they were younger. Not just for nostalgia reasons, but because they're getting older, they're adulting, they have lives, can't necessarily put 500 hours into Skyrim, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But you also had developers that were longing for the ability to make simpler games, because it had gotten to the point where a development team was so large that most people, unless you were one of the real top creatives, you were just a small cog in a much larger machine. So you didn't necessarily get the same level of satisfaction being the guy that placed all the trees on the map as back in the day when you were the guy that designed the entire map. You had the internet and connectivity, because not just the internet, but also connectivity in consoles, leading to a democratization, leading to it to be easier to spread a game. You didn't necessarily need retail to be able to spread a product. So when you put all of this together, and undoubtedly some other stuff that... We don't even realize the full nature of today because we don't have the perspective on it. You start getting this independent game scene where you start getting smaller, simpler games being distributed initially through internet websites and portals, moving on from there to Steam after 2005, once Steam became more than just the thing you had to install to install Half-Life 2 and actually became more of a digital distribution storefront. Also, the console companies in the very beginning were very keen to get on this. I think Steam and and other internet sources kind of eventually blanketed them out of this, but we have to remember that the Nintendo Wii had WiiWare, and the Xbox and the Xbox 360 had Xbox Live Arcade, both of which were very critical platforms for the release of some of the very early indie hits like World of Goo, Castle Crashers, and Braid. One thing that characterized this new wrinkle and new development is people were okay with games that had a little more depth to them and a little more primitiveness in the graphics. In general, most players were still not going to be satisfied with something like ASCII characters, (laughs) like Rogue at NetHack. But... You kind of did have this nostalgia wave for the games of the NES era, the SNES Genesis era, these sprite-based games. The idea of two-dimensional games and games that didn't have the latest in polygonal art was appealing, and technology had moved on so much that it was relatively simple to make these games now and make them look good. I mean, they didn't have to look pixelated like an NES game. You actually had platforms that were appearing that made it easy for just about anyone to create these simple kind of games. One of the early platforms, of course, which most true programmers would shudder at now was Flash, which started out as a uh, program to create animations. But then as it got more sophisticated uh, scripting capabilities, it essentially became, by about version four, I believe, it essentially became a programming language in which you could create Games And so you had Newgrounds, most famously, and other places where you could get these little Flash games. But there were also other programs like Game Maker, which is uh, still supported, I believe, today, which provided a lot of the basic capability you needed, a basic game engine to create these kind of simple games. You had programmers, professional programmers even, that were longing for these more simpler times and wanted to create whole games themselves or in partnership with just a small number of people, because they got a great satisfaction out of that, that they didn't necessarily get in AAA game development anymore. Because these games were meant to be a little more sophisticated in gameplay, oftentimes, to make up for their lack of sophistication in graphics, and to have deeper, more interesting systems to engage with to make up for, say, their lack of extreme length that some of these modern games had, The rogue genre was actually a perfect fit for this new indie game movement, because you could create a game that had a lot of depth to it, that didn't need state-of-the-art 3D graphics, you could keep it in 2D and just have some nice sprite art or nice 2D art in it, plus the kind of random nature and the permadeath nature of it means that you could have a lot of quick sessions in rapid succession, rather than having to devote a hundred hours to a really in-depth open world or sandbox kind of game or an online uh, MMO or some of the other types of games that were taking over. That's a long way of saying that rogue gameplay kind of got a second life starting in the middle of the 2000s. This wasn't your grandfather's rogue. It wasn't just let's make a dungeon crawler. It was let's blend together some of these other things, these other genres that we like, there were a couple of games that did this kind of in the 2000 uh, to 2006 period. Won't go into depth on any of them. Probably the most famous one from that period is Dwarf Fortress, which even still uses uh, some of those ASCII graphics. You practically have to with how complex that game is. It's very complex. There are some graphical add-ons that other people have made, but yeah, the screen gets so full of so many different things. (laughs) The ASCII graphics are almost a necessity. The city management or construction management building game that has some rogue elements... About the time Dwarf Fortress came out in 2006 is when you started getting this uh, terminology, the so called rogue like, which kind of defined games that had a lot of the standard rogue conventions like randomized levels and permadeath and all of that stuff, but uh, took it in slightly different directions. Even though some of those games were successful, really the game that really launched this movement is a game that is near and dear to my heart, even though I've barely played it, because it is also the namesake for my delightful cat, and that is Spelunky. Spelunky was the brainchild of an individual by the name of Derek Yu. Derek was a lifelong gamer. He was born in 1982. His parents got an Atari even before he was born, so he literally grew up with that Atari system. He had an uncle who got an NES kind of right when it came out. He's of an age with you and I, and he had some of the same formative experiences we do and fell in love with those kinds of games. He started designing games when he was very young. He started creating games when he was like eight years old, obviously, some of them very simple, not all of them out in the wider world, but he was interested in game design from a very young age. He started making games uh, with a friend, John Perry. They even released a few of them through uh, AOL communities when that was a thing, in indie forums on the net and that kind of stuff. He ended up teaming up with another designer, Alec Kalakwa, to make a puzzle exploration game called Aquaria. It was released in 2007 and was fairly successful, but it had grown into kind of a big project, and he kind of wanted to pull back and do something simpler, just on his own, as his next thing. So he started playing around with Game Maker, which I talked about before, and he started prototyping various things. He was making some platform games, because he'd been a huge fan of platformers ever since the original Super Mario Brothers. He was fooling around with dungeon exploration games. He'd played NetHack, he'd played roguelike games, he was enamored with some of the systems of them, but he didn't really like playing them. The concept of some of their systems was kind of cool, but he didn't really like playing them. He's making some platformers, but they're not that exciting. He's making some roguelike dungeon crawl games, but he really doesn't like that kind of gameplay, so he's really not feeling that either. He kind of sits down and he's asking himself, you know, and this is in his own words, he wrote a a book on the creation of the game for Boss Fight Games that is, you know, kind of a first-person account of how he created the game. He's thinking about it, you know, he's making these platformers, he's making these roguelikes, and he's kind of thinking, what do I like and what do I not like about these? Well, the thing he liked about platformers is that they're action-oriented. He prefers action games. Rogue and NetHack and all those, they're turn-based. They're not action games. He likes that platformers are easy to pick up and play. He likes the fact that every jump is a moment of tension. Every time you have to jump, you don't know quite how it's going to go. This is what he likes about platformers. What he doesn't like about platformers, though, is it's very similar to the people that encountered adventure and decided to make roguelikes. It's the same thing. He doesn't like the fact that it's the same thing every time you play it. He doesn't like the fact that it forces repetitive play over the same material in order to get good. It becomes about memorization of the patterns of the level more than it is about the skill with the mechanics of the game. I mean, you have to be skilled, but at the end of the day, it's really the pattern memorization. So that's what he doesn't like about platformers. What does he like about roguelikes? He likes that the levels are randomly generated. Because we just talked about how he doesn't like the repetitive play of levels and platformers. He also likes permadeath. We really didn't talk about this in the last episode. It was kind of an oversight. But when we talk about permadeath in rogue and those kind of games, what we mean is when you're exploring the dungeon in rogue or hack or NetHack or, or any of these other games, you're getting deeper in the level, you're acquiring more abilities, you're acquiring more potions, more equipment, whatever. As you go, you're getting stronger, you're overcoming tougher challenges. But when you die. That's it. That character that you've been building up is done. You want to start playing again, you have to create a new character, beginning character from scratch, start over from level one, and go about it again. These games all have an end goal. They're not endless games. You're supposed to descend to the deepest level of the dungeon and get the amulet of Yendor. That's the MacGuffin that was in Rogue, and many of the games that followed on it just kept that MacGuffin. So there is an end goal to it. You can win at Rogue. But you have to do it in one setting. Not in one sitting, because you can save, but in one playthrough of the game. When you're dead, you're dead. This started because originally Rogue was, there was no save ability in Rogue. You just had to play it all at once. And they decided, well, you know, that's no good. People may want to attack this in chunks. So they put a save feature in. But then they realized that people were doing what we now call save scumming. Which is, take a step, save the game. Take a step, save a game. Take the, a step, save the game. Oh, I died. Reload. So that sucked all the challenge out of it. Because you could just endlessly retry if you were that kind of person. So they were like, fine. We want a save system because we want players to be able to play in more than one sitting. But we don't want them save scumming. They added permadeath as a protection against save scumming. Once you're dead, you're dead. The program wipes your save. Goodbye. hmm Exactly. So you can't reload when you die and try again. You're done. The
0: really sneaky ones go, okay, you started the game. I'm going to delete the file, take all of the save stuff, keep it in RAM so you can't pull that file off somewhere else. And then once you save and quit, then I'll put the file back.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If you die, I'm not writing it anymore. Exactly. So you liked the permadeath as well. Because as, as we said, you know, with platformers, he liked how there was a hint of danger every time you take a jump. He wanted a hint of danger to be in his games, and so Permadeath provides that kind of hint of danger. He's mulling this over, platformers, roguelikes, platformers, roguelikes, and then in a burst of inspiration, he's like, why not both? Why not a randomly generated
0: cave system full of death and destruction treasures rolling boulders that bounce off the walls in order to come back at me and roll me over. Why not have spiders that come from the
1: sky, left, right, (laughs) up, down, while pressing B.A.? I'd had fun. Exactly. So that's what he did. He combined these two genres. And, you know, the platforming, like I said, it largely came from his love of Super Mario Brothers. The setting, it was your typical kind of Indiana Jones thing. The destructible environments actually came from a very obscure Japanese game from back in 1983 that had destructible environments that he had never played, a game called Kagiri Naki Tatakai, I may have butchered the pronunciation, but whatever, which he'd never actually played, but he read about on the website Hardcore Gaming 101 that covers a lot of obscure games, including Japanese games, and thought that that was a cool idea, so he added the destructible terrain, and of course from the roguelike, the random generation, the random sequences, and the permadeath. He releases it in 2008, and he just puts it out as this piece of freeware at first. This is what is today called Spelunky Classic. It was just a piece of freeware. It had very pixelated graphics. It was never intended to be a commercial product, because this was just kind of a palate cleanser, kind of let me do something simple. But then Jonathan Blow, one of the first indie game superstars, creator of Braid, saw the game and was like, this is really good. You should consider releasing this commercially. I think people will pay money for this, and you can release it on Xbox Live Arcade. Braid had just become a phenomenal hit through Xbox Live Arcade. Jonathan Blow had pull there. So he basically called up his producer with Microsoft and said, Hey, there's this game called Spelunky. It's really good. You should sign a contract to get this on Xbox Live Arcade. So they did that, and they agreed that it looked great. They just had one stipulation. It's like, to appeal to that more mass-market console audience, they didn't want the pixelated graphics. I mean, you know, 2D's fine. It's Xbox Live Arcade. It's supposed to be smaller, simpler, two-dimensional kind of action games. It's just they don't want these really pixelated graphics. We need some beautiful-looking art. Other than that, hey, this is great. So he did have to recreate it. This version wasn't in Game Maker. He had to recreate the game, and he got a lot of help at this point from another programmer to help him actually put that game together by the name of Andy Hull. They released it on the platform, and it got rave reviews. It won awards. It did a lot of sales. And this was really the game that opened people's eyes, even though there had been a few games before that, like Dwarf Fortress. This was the game that opened the eyes of the development community and were like, okay, rogue doesn't just have to mean turn-based exploring a dungeon. Rogue can be just about anything you want it to be, where you combine procedural generation and permadeath and whatnot. You can make anything rogue. Kind of the real appeal about Spelunky and, and the thing that people really liked about Spelunky as opposed to real rogue games like NetHack and whatnot, is, those games have a lot of luck involved in them. There isn't a huge amount of skill. You can do some strategizing, but there isn't a huge amount of skill in a game like NetHack. It kind of depends on what enemies you run into, what items you've happened to find, kind of dictates how it goes. Now, if you have more knowledge about the games and its systems, yeah, you can still learn things. You can still do the game better. But at some point, it comes down to how lucky you are with which monsters you encounter at the times you have which abilities. The thing that was cool about Spelunky is even though it was randomly generated, you could actively improve and get better at it. Even though things were going to come at you in different orders and in different configurations, the core gameplay mechanics were constant. So the first time you see an obstacle of some kind, it might defeat you. But then you realize, okay, this is how I deal with that obstacle. Even though that obstacle won't happen in the exact same place the next time you play it, when you do see that obstacle or that enemy or that configuration again, it's going to make sense and you can do it a little better. You can actually really improve your skill at Spelunky and games like Spelunky as you play them more, which wasn't necessarily the case in a traditional roguelike. I mean, I played Spelunky a bit. It's hard. It is
0: a challenging game. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. But it is fair. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when I was playing NetHack, I always had the sense of, okay, that's the letter A. Each time the letter A is there, that's a random something. So I'm not sure what that's going to be. I know the ones might be a potion. Oh, it's a green one this time. Is that poison or healing? I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of I don't know, and I had to figure it out every single time. Exactly. It's almost like there's too much randomness there.
2: hmm
1: Exactly. Which, uh, as we discussed in our last episode, you know, the legacy of that was Toy and Wickman wanted to be able to play their own game, not just have other people play it. As you said, they made everything random every time, including the effects of potions. And because hack and net hack, et cetera, were based on rogue, they carried that forward. And, and like you said, yeah, it leads to almost too much randomness. Then you start playing Splunky. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, now
0: I always know what to expect when I fight a mummy. There's going to be some stuff coming out of their mouth in order to come at me, so I better jump. There's going to be these red birds that are going to be there. There's going to be a boulder that's rolling by me and I know that, oh, okay, the first time it bounces off the far wall and comes back at me, okay, yes, now I know it can bounce, so I know once I dodge it, I gotta dodge it again as it comes back towards me. Those little things. It's like you have little mechanics and little things in there that actually help you with that. And that follows further on with games like Rogue Legacy, Mm -hmm. FTL, Mm -hmm. and other ones where, yeah, the world and stuff are generated, but you get the scenarios and say FTL. Okay, yeah, I know normally with this scenario, if I have these kind of characters, I'll have roughly this percent chance. Okay, well, there's a good chance that tends to come up a lot, so... I want to make sure I always have a person who can do engineering really well or a person who does piloting really well, Mm -hmm. whatever.
1: So I can sort of prepare and sort of stack the deck. Exactly. I think as much as adding graphics and not just having ASCII characters, the idea of the roguelike where you can learn the game as you play and improve on the game and not be quite so reliant on luck is a big part of the reason why you had a resurgence of roguelikes. And Spelunky was a big part of starting that. And Spelunky really influenced the next two big games, like directly influenced the next two big games that carried this forward. The first of those is the game. The Binding of Isaac.
0: Ah, good old Binding of Isaac.
1: <laughs> exactly. If you want toilet humor, that's the game for you. There's definitely some of that going on in there. Binding of Isaac, again, it's the similar legacy of a developer that got a little burned out and wanted to go a little simpler. Because Binding of Isaac was created by uh, two developers named Edmund McMillan and Florian Hemsel. Macmillan had already made a name for himself by creating the indie classic Super Meat Boy, which had just come out and been wildly successful and gave him the financial wherewithal because of that success to basically do whatever he wanted for his next game project and, and not even necessarily have to worry about the financial implications. At the same time, Super Meat Boy nearly killed him. The crunch on that game to get it ready for release. Again, this was another Xbox Live Arcade title. There was a very brief period of time where Xbox Live Arcade was like the destination for putting out indie games. The crunch on that was so terrible that he basically really just wanted to do something simple, something that he wanted to do, something really basic. And so he decided to make a a Flash game because that was just something so incredibly simple. The Binding of Isaac itself actually came out of a game jam. He had grown up in a rather interesting religious household. In some ways, doing Binding of Isaac was kind of reacting to and a reaction to kind of that environment that he had grown up in. From a gameplay perspective, he was really enamored with what Spelunky did. Like, specifically Spelunky, with combining the roguelike with other things. Ian Hemsall, who he had previously collaborated with on some other Flash games, basically thought, what if we took the Legend of Zelda-style mechanics and applied it to the rogue concepts of random generation and permadeath and all of this good stuff? So that's what they did to create the Binding of Isaac. The levels in Binding of Isaac are set up very much like an OG Zelda dungeon. With these individual rectangular rooms with monsters and traps and and obstacles to overcome and and moving through these individual rooms, through these dungeons, gathering stuff and beating a big boss. And then just as in Zelda, in every dungeon, you get a form of power-up for your character in the form of a heart container from defeating the boss, and you also get some kind of treasure that gives you additional abilities— they brought that into The Binding of Isaac with the idea that after every successfully completed level, you would get a random power-up of some kind and a random tool, gadget, weapon, whatever of some kind to further strengthen your character for their further adventure. Again, it was this idea of taking the roguelike and applying it to a different game. Derek Yu applied it to Mario. McMillan and Hymsel applied it to Zelda. They did it exactly because Spelunky had done it before them. That's why I'm saying it's, it's this real direct influence. And so you get another roguelike example that's very popular, which, which does The Legend of Zelda, except as a roguelike. The other game that came out at about the same time, that came out in 2012, is the one that you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago, FTL. FTL was created by two designers named Matthew Davis and Justin Ma, who worked for 2K Shanghai. Take-Two Interactive Studio in Shanghai, this was a period of time when a lot of the bigger AAA publishers were starting to create development studios in the developing world because they could source labor cheaper there, and they would do a lot of the art and programming, but not a lot of the design of things. 2K Shanghai had originally been created to help Take-Two get their games into China, but then it also became this kind of internal outsourcing studio where you would outsource art and programming that you needed to get done, but you didn't want to pay a developer in a more expensive part of the world to do for you. So, you know, that kind of work is not always the most fulfilling, and so the two of them decided that they wanted to go independent, join this new indie scene, and actually get this kind of sense of accomplishment of creating their own game. They were primarily inspired in creating FTL by a couple of different things. One was a couple of board games, actually, that had come out. One of which was Battlestar Galactica, the board game, and the other of which was a game called Red November. Both of these had similar premises. In Battlestar Galactica, which was based on the rebooted Battlestar Galactica television series, you each take on a role within the fleet— There are crises that come up within the fleet, just like there were many crises that came up in the fleet during the course of the television show. You had to figure out how to solve these crises and keep the fleet functioning while also making jumps through space and keeping one step ahead of the pursuing Cylons. Red November was a cooperative kind of comedic submarine game where you play the gnomish crew of the submarine Red November, obviously a take on uh, the Red October from the John Clancy novel and, and movie The Hunt for Red October. This submarine is not in the best of shape. Things start breaking all over it, and you have to split up and fix all of these problems that are happening on the submarine. So, they were really enamored with this kind of gameplay where you're taking on roles within this group and having to go and fix things and keep things going. They were also big sci fi fans. Obviously, they like Battlestar Galactica, they like the board game, but they're also huge Deep Space Nine fans. They like the idea of doing something in space. And then, just like the Binding of Isaac people, they saw Spelunky and were like, hey, This is really cool that you can take these rogue elements and put them into basically anything you want. So based on combining Spelunky with the idea of these board games, they did FTL, which was essentially the rogue-like as real-time strategy game. It's not traditional real-time strategy in the sense that you're building a base and then going and blowing up the other person's base, but it's real-time strategy in the sense that you have a bunch of units, the crew of your ship each of which have different capabilities, in this case their specializations as crew members, then there are different things going wrong both inside your ship and without in the form of enemies, and you have to basically keep this whole darn thing running and overcome all of the myriad of threats as you are trying to complete your mission. That's FTL, Faster Than Light, roguelike as real-time strategy. I love that game. I played that game way, way too much.
0: <laughs> it's an interesting game. It's a challenging game. It's a hard one. I can usually get to the final mothership with most of the ships, but then defeating that thing is just hard because you have this final zone where you have your ship. It's taking damage left and right. You're trying to take out the mothership that goes through three different phases, pretty much. Each of those phases are so different from each other you have to completely change your strategy you have to account for it and you can do certain things that make it worse (laughs) you can be in phase one and be like okay if i just target their life support and their weapons oh look they all asphyxiated and died because of all my wonderful ion cannons (laughs) what do you mean the ai took over and now the thing's like unstoppable death
1: You know, again, it's not just the randomization of rogue that made this very interesting, but it was also just like with Spelunky, it was very much the permadeath that was a core part of made this interesting because they made FTL super easy to just start over. They didn't want any barriers between you starting over again if you had a run that was not going well. And it's kind of the same idea as Spelunky. You have all of these complex systems, and they can be overwhelming at first, and you die all the time at first because everything's on fire and you don't know what's going on. But as you restart over and over again, you learn a little bit more about how all of these systems work. You learn a little bit more about the specialties you need to keep things going. It's what you were saying. I mean, you said this, I realized, just a little earlier in the episode about making sure you have enough engineers and making sure you have enough of this and this you learn it as you go and so the randomization and the permadeath together those two hallmarks of a roguelike work together to make something very compelling it's it's very similar to the just one more turn addiction of something like civilization except in this case just one more turn doesn't mean advancing your civilization that much further it's more just just one more death this time i'm going to do it this time i figured it out one more system
0: go to the next map and just yep. at least get myself repaired up i also want to point out with particularly ftl And to a lesser extent, Splunky and Binding of Isaac is not just the gameplay and the graphics, but also the music. Mm -hmm. I love how they did the music in FTL. You had this sort of like calm music that plays when you're just there in space, hanging out, trying to get things repaired after a long fight. Then it goes into a tension, a building tension music. Whenever you get into a combat, it throws a bit of a mystery music whenever you're sort of like... Okay, should I make this choice or that choice? Should I go after the ship that is in the nebula? Or should I just say, cut my losses and go away? That kind of music just really complements it, particularly FTL, Mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent, Binding of Isaac and others of these roguelike games, which I think is something that's often overlooked with the way people interact with games and a lot of different media. Music can be extremely powerful if extremely subtle. Mm -hmm. Think about any time that you watch your favorite television show that you're really into, a movie that you're really into. There's subtle, very quiet, very low music that's playing there that just sort of helps set the mood. What am I supposed to be feeling? What am I supposed to be taking from this moment? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a lot of difference between the soft-spoken character that they're talking here going, hi, how am I doing? What... What am I doing here? Where are you? I can't find you. <laughs> Having that same kind of exchange in words with attention music versus a mysterious music or maybe even a sad music sort of conveys a different thing. Like, am I afraid in this moment? Am I supposed to feel sad for a loss? Am I supposed to feel wonder in exploration of the unknown? I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point, and it's kind of a good segue into the final game I want to talk about in this episode. Those are really the big three, and that's that's not to lessen the impact of other games like Dwarf Fortress, but I think it's fair to say that the big three in creating this modern roguelike renaissance were really Spelunky, The Binding of Isaac, and FTL. They certainly popularized it. Exactly. There are a ton of other roguelikes we could talk about, I don't want to get into that just because it is all still so new. We don't know which ones are going to have the staying power. We don't know which ones are going to influence the future. Picking what to talk about at that point, it becomes a little too recent. But there is one more game I just want to talk about just as an exemplar of kind of how this carried forward in in the next generation of this moving on from the big three there. And that is Crypt of the Necrodancer. Speaking of music lending to a game, the interesting thing about Crypt of the Necrodancer is it kind of brings the rogue thing full circle a little bit again. Once again, he was influenced by Spelunky and games like that. He loved the fact that unlike pure rogue games like NetHack, there was a fairness to it and there was a learning to it. One thing that Ryan Clark, the designer of the game, felt was missing from games like Spelunky and FTL was that they had really completely put the turn-based aspect of roguelikes, of rogue games, completely by the wayside. They were all, to a degree or another, completely real-time kind of action games. He wanted to bring back some of that sense of turn-based gameplay— But he still wanted the sense of urgency that a modern roguelike provided. He didn't want it to be like NetHack, where nothing ever moved. You take a step, and then all the monsters do their thing. The game is done until you take a step again. You can sit there as long as you want, pondering what you wanted to do. He wanted to have more immediacy than that. But he wanted to evoke that turn-based thing. And so he wanted to have, essentially, really short turns— So he was thinking to himself, well, how can I implement really short turns? And he's like, well, essentially a rhythm game, even though it's a real-time game, is a game of really short turns because you're doing each note individually, one by one, and you have to wait for the next note before you can do anything. You can't just button mash. But the next note is coming very quickly, so that turn is very fast. He was basically like, what if we took the roguelike gameplay of a Spelunky and applied it to a rhythm game setting in order to get some of that sense of turn-based play into it and so that's where the idea for Crypt of the NecroDancer comes from where you're going around you're exploring you're killing monsters you're doing all of that stuff that you would normally do in this kind of game except you have to do it while not losing the rhythm of your steps got to move with the music <laughs> got to speak with the right words
0: got to to speak with them in time, or else I die, and the podcast and ah!
1: <laughs> Love it. Exactly. So, you know, we could have picked any game to be kind of representative of, of what's going on today. I mean, even Crypt of the Necrodancer is a few years old now, came out in 2015 originally. But a new DLC just came out, Alex. I had to buy it. It's mine now. Absolutely. I mean, some of these games obviously are still being updated. And of course, there was a Spelunky 2 recently. I mean, you know, these games still resonate. And there's just so many today. Uh, you know, at some point in the distant future, assuming, you know, we're still doing this podcast, I hope we are, you know, we can revisit some of this. But, you know, we don't want to bring it too far into the present. This is already way more into the present than we normally go. I mean, we talked about games in the, the 20-teens, Jeffrey, outside of our 100 Most Influential Games episode. Have we even talked about a 20-teens game before now? I'm not sure we have. <laughs> so We've done some 2000s, but I'm not sure we've done 2010s. <laughs>
0: It really depends on where you see that cutoff being and whether or not expansion packs and DLC counts, because we have
1: brought up World of Warcraft and that's still here today. True, true. But yeah, we, we don't go this far forward too often, but there was enough tying it back to the ancient stuff with Rogue and NetHack that it felt like a logical place to bring it forward. But that's how we got here. So, I mean, even though a game like Crypt of the Necrodancer or Hades, to use one even more recent bear only the smallest bit of resemblance, quite frankly, to the game itself known as Rogue, there is a direct line from what Michael Toy and Glenn Wickman did on Unix-based PDP 11s with ASCII character sets back in 1980, 1981, to some of the most popular indie games in existence today on platforms like Steam. I hope these uh, last two episodes have given some of a sense of that and, and some appreciation for how we got here.
0: Certainly given me some appreciation. I really never understood how influential Unix was to Rogue.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yes. But I did know how Rogue was very influential in the formation of NetHack, mm-hmm. in the formation of Muds and Mucks and the whole MMO scene, in the formation of... A lot of different games, including taking some of those elements of random generation of both monsters, gear, so on and so forth, and then applying that in a procedural style in order to create games that have a lot of staying power, Mm -hmm. have really deep mechanics where Mm -hmm. not only do you just pick up what you do as you play the game, but oftentimes, especially with a lot of the more modern ones. You do things where, yes, you are expected to die a lot. And because you die a lot, here's a little bit of something that you can save up in order to buy a permanent upgrade to your character mm-hmm. so that everyone further down the line is a little bit stronger, a little bit more craftier.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It endures so well because there is a lot of depth, but it's respectful of your time. I love games that you know you can play for 100 hours as well, so I'm not dissing those at all. but A lot of games with depth, with lots of different systems, you also have to spend hundreds of hours before you really feel like you're coming to terms with those systems. Whereas these games have a lot of depth, but you can tackle them in chunks, even though there's a challenge to them and a frustration sometimes that you're dying over and over, because of the random generation, it's not repetitive. You feel like it's different every time. You feel like you're getting better every time. You feel like you can tackle it in chunks. You don't have to sink 100 hours into it over a month or something. You can tackle it as you can. And I think all of that provides a lot of staying power to these games in this world of big, expansive AAA projects on console platforms.
0: I'm out of Rogue Games. (laughs) You're out of Rogue Games. So we're going to have to reset the seed on this one and go back to the past. Because next time, we're going to be talking about the computer war, the great computer wars.
1: That's right. We're going to give kind of an overview of how the early home computer market developed. And then we're going to get in the nitty gritty of the height of the home computer market, which would probably say it was 1981-ish to 1984-ish. We're going to discuss the rise and fall of that market and kind of why things never really got on track again after that until such time as the PC clones came in. So kind of big, broad overview. North American market, of course. We do know that our friends over in Europe and in other places had a very different experience with how the home computer market developed. This is definitely very U.S. market centric. We've done some episodes, though, as well on that British market, so we are aware it's out there. Some of you will have actually listened to that before you listen to this episode, if you catch any part of the stream. But officially, those three episodes from that September 24th stream will be the next three episodes sequentially of this podcast. Numbers 172, 173, and 174, if you can believe it.
0: I can't believe it. I'm fighting to what happens when we hit 200. <laughs> Indeed. Here's to getting older and continuing to add more and more episodes. Next time on this computer war. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1 can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcasting service. It helps get the word out. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. All other music used is public domain.